the world is on the brink of a climate-related disaster. The solution requires a combination of engineering disciplines that don't come together very often. But they must, because the challenge is so enormous that the future of the human race quite literally depends on it. And it concerns the food that sustains us. Wheat, rice, sweet corn and soybean currently provide two-thirds of human caloric intake worldwide. But the world is changing. In the face of rising global temperatures, crop yields are expected to fall. With each additional degree of warming, wheat production alone will fall by 6% and rice by 3.2%. Those are the overall figures from a 2017 study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the US. And it gets worse. We are not on track for just one degree of warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its sixth assessment in August of this year, which it described as a code red for humanity. The report says we'll see somewhere between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 5.5 degrees Celsius warming by the year 2100. Whether we'll find ourselves at the low end or the high end of the range depends largely on the actions taken by governments in the coming decades to limit greenhouse gas emissions. A five degree warmer world is a frightening prospect, especially with a global population in 2050 expected to be close to 10 billion, up from less than 8 billion today. A fact that the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN projects will require 70% more food production than we currently achieve. With international political will to fight this future still very much in doubt, we will need to use every tool at our disposal to give us a fighting chance. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we have partnered with Intelligent Growth Solutions to talk about a new kind of farming. It combines a range of engineering and scientific disciplines. Mechanical engineering, robotics, software engineering, thermodynamics, lighting, microbiology and hydroponics. It also takes advantage of the latest agricultural science at the James Hutton Institute in Dundee. All this comes together to enable vertical farming. Farming in climate-controlled towers with plants each in their own trays, it sounds like something from a far-off future, but it's already a technical and commercial reality. But first, we need to understand a little about the modern agricultural industry that vertical farming is born into. Well, I think it, it has to be, it is transformative because you're, you are suddenly the controller of weather. And if you're a farmer, weather's the bane of your life. You never, get, you never get rain when you need it or it comes in when you don't want it. This is Derek Stewart. He's the director of the Advanced Plant Growth Centre at the James Hutton Institute. At the moment, so today it's 10th of August, it's harvesting time for a lot of people. I can guarantee it's going to be raining someplace. Which, for that farmer, means that harvesting can't go ahead. Something as simple as an unlucky rain can be devastating. 
So if you're controlling the box in which you grow things, you can be growing 24 seven, 365. So your productivity like for like will always be better in vertical farming because simply you can grow it all the time. You don't have any disease. You don't have to then worry about uh, pesticides. Uh, you can control the fertilizer and water use. So on an average, water use is down by 90% in vertical farming. Um, not a problem in Scotland, to be honest, water. But if you go to places such as the Middle East, or even increasingly the southeast of England, water is becoming a real problem. And of course, fossil fuel use for fertilizers, we want to control that. We want to reuse it when it's not used. So vertical farming or controlled environment farming, which is a broader term, allows you to do all these things. You are currently limited in what you can grow in controlled environment farming, although this is expanding. And as Derek says... But that doesn't mean that it's just all about herbs. There's lots of other crops you can grow, smaller protein crops, smaller fruits. And actually at my institute, we're, trying, we're thinking about redesigning the crop to fit the box. Because we've designed the box now. You've got the vertical farming companies like Intelligent Growth Solutions. How can we redesign the crop to fit? Maximise the parts of the plant that you want, minimise the parts that you don't want. Or perhaps shrink an entire bush down to half a metre and have it produce fruit all year round. Derek says that agriculture is a naturally conservative industry, but it is broadening its horizons. He looks a lot at the circular economy around agriculture, using the waste products of one process to fuel another. Interestingly, I'm just finishing up a report for Zero Waste Scotland, which is a body that looks at reduction in waste. So circular economy or circular bioeconomy is my area in agriculture. It's basically using all the resources or maximising resource use. So if you're, say for example, you're harvesting wheat for bread, so you harvest the wheat, you, you've got the grain, you mill the grain and you get the starchy flour out. That can then be converted through milling and other cutting edge engineering processes to create up to 30 other products, according to Derek. Themselves, if you made them all out of that bran, would be 10 to 20 times more valuable than the flour itself. So it's maximising that resource use. Um, so, for example, if you've got, I don't know, Scotland produces, I don't know, one, two million tonnes of barley, so you've probably got two, three million tonnes of straw. The straw is used as animal feed and bedding, but you can convert that into feedstock chemicals to allow you to make PET or other sustainable plastics. So we have to start thinking differently in how we use resources and recycle them. How many times can you go around the use loop before something's redundant? And if we're getting rid of fossil fuels, agriculture is going to be the new feedstock for chemicals. Derek adds that in controlled environment farming, he expects to see pharmaceutical development before long. But that he's also particularly interested in plantlets, growing plants in vertical farm towers, which you then transport outside before they're mature. This is often the most dangerous phase of development for plant life. So one thing we're looking at at the moment is trees. So no one would think about growing trees in vertical farms. But the problem with that is, is when you create plantlets for trees, your attrition rate or creating these plantlets is quite high. But if you did it in a vertical farm, you should have no waste. They'll all survive to a certain size. Take them out, put them outside. I mean, so that will be particularly useful in ecological projects where you want to rewild with native species, not just for production, but for putting nature back the way it was. Um, that potentially could be a business for vertical farming or 
if you've got the vertical farm, so you, you've got the trees set up, you've got the perfect lights and conditions. Why not create new populations of the staple crops? Wheat, maize, corn, rice, potato, and start doing the actual breeding of the new strains indoors. And if you do it that way, on most of these plants, you can get through four cycles in a year. Whereas actually trialling my side, you've got one year. So you weed out all the, the, the ropey crosses. And so what, what you eventually put outside, you know, has all the genes for great taste, high protein, disease resistance, whatever. So everything you put out has been much more de-risked. So this is where vertical farming can integrate really well with existing agriculture. And the farmers are really starting to see this now as our breeding companies. As a rough calculation, Derek thinks that there are about 6,000 condition settings that can be achieved in a modern vertical farm. This allows for incredible R&D, which we will hear more about later. The scientists at James Hutton generally believe that in 10 years' time, vertical farms will probably be visible as you drive around the countryside. They may even be owned cooperatively among farmers. So it is a, it's a massive vending machine that grows fruit, veg and trees. Okay, so that is the, it's a vending machine the size of a block of flats and uh, it grows all these things. This is Dave Scott. When you go inside, there's a, there's a roller door and that is the environmental isolator. So when you go inside, you are now in, in a different, uh, different environment. And this could be any, anywhere in the world. So we can make it very hot, very cold, very humid, very dry, uh, and we can change that on the fly. So the environment is initially what hits you, the smell is what hits you as well. Uh, and then uh, obviously you can't miss the lights. Dave is Chief Technology Officer and co-founder at Intelligent Growth Solutions. So all these things uh, is, is very sudden uh, and it's a very eerie, kind of acoustically, it's very odd as well. He's an electrician and a mechanical engineer, and although he himself had no background in agriculture, he looks set to revolutionise it. And yeah, so I've flown around the world building kind of automated warehouses and it was in one of these warehouses that I met a rather eccentric farmer called Henry, uh, who had some fantastic uh, visions. And then we created Intelligent Growth. So it is a, a very untraditional path to, to become from an electrician at college to a farmer who is terrible at growing things. Fortunately for the future of farming, Dave leads a diverse team of experts. And there are plenty of people who understand plants better than him. He is the mechanical engineer and understands the physical systems of the box, as Derek calls it, better than anyone. Dave was working on an automated warehouse for a major retailer when a colleague approached him about her neighbour. That neighbour was Henry Aykroyd, the farmer who would go on to found Intelligent Growth Solutions along with Dave. So I met this, this incredible individual called Henry whose who's mind is just intense. He's very, he's two steps ahead of, of everything you, you think. He's, he really is quite incredible. And, and what he wanted was to grow things all year round. So he wanted speed, efficiency, uh, no pest and disease, peatability, scalability, and at no extra cost. So the, the to-do list was, was quite extreme uh, and quite daunting. So, Dave and Henry looked at what was needed from an engineering perspective, from the bottom to the top. And taking, see, I'm, I'm 
I know cranes and lifts very well. And simple things like powering the LEDs the, in a farm, we do it exactly the same way that we would power a 30-ton lift. And the, those two disciplines, those crosses, and allowed us to do some fundamental changes to indoor farming, which actually allowed Henry's to-do list to actually become reality, which we never thought at the beginning. We thought we would get maybe three or four out of his, his ideals, but we actually managed to get most of them just from doing fundamental, just pulling different industries together. So our farm is powered by a lot of car automation, as in car factory automation, uh, and big power crane kind of back back end stuff, which is very bizarre. We never thought it would be the case. The critical systems in a vertical farm are everything you'd expect to do with environmental control. The watering, the lights, the ventilation and temperature. Uh, absolutely. So these are all very important. What we bring to the party, which is unique, is how we power the LEDs. As I mentioned before, we power a, a little tiny one watt LED the same way we would power a 30 ton crane. And what that gives us is scale, efficiency, safety and flexibility and optical stability as well. So our lights don't pulse and flicker and, and all these kind of things unless you want them to. And again, that goes back to the science. Most small electrical items have single phase power delivered to them. Think of a bedside lamp. It will receive a 240 volt single phase supply. Basically, the electricity behaves as a single sine wave, which, as it passes through one wavelength, has two points without any energy being delivered, so your lamp will flicker ever so slightly. Heavy machinery, such as a crane, is usually fed three-phase power. This means there are three sine waves overlapping and constant power is delivered. Three-phase power in the UK is 400 volts, which is lethal. So IGS had to convert it down to 50 volts, so it can be touched without risk. And so the lights used by IGS are completely flicker-free. So you can have the colours completely steady, uh, like you would on a, on, a, on a very expensive film set. Uh, you can have that quality of light at very little cost. Or you can start to do crazy things, and you can pulse the lights and the colours at different intensities, different timings, and you can even do them at, at different gaps. So you could pulse the red and the gap of the green with a little bit of blue in between. And, and all that is to, to change how the plants react and how they react in these different situations is really quite incredible. So you can stretch them, dwarf them, change the colour, taste, flavour, nutrition, all these kind of things, just with the light alone. Then comes the environment and the watering. Systems which also allow unprecedented control of plant development. They all have a, a very interlinked effect at every different stage of growth and for every different type of crop and variety of crop. So this is where the, the combinations are, are literally endless. And it, it, yeah, that's what attracted us to this, is we are good enough already with our knowledge, but actually over the next couple of years, you will grow into these machines instead of uh, an obsolescence curve. Usually you buy a machine and it's only as good as it can be on day one, and then it starts to tail off. Actually, for our towers, you will grow into them. In two years' time, you'll be getting more yield, more flavour, more nutrients out of the crops that you want to grow, and more crops as well. Farming is very regional, and different regions have their own market demands, their own traditions and crops, 
But ultimately, farmers all want risk taken out of operations. The nice thing about this is there's parameters which they all want and there's parameters that are separate and our system allows us to care for those. So they all want repeatability, scalability, and they just want the, the natural gamble of, of the weather to be removed. And of course we can do that. They also have the, the commercial gamble. For example, if the weather at the weekend is going to be poor, some of the big retailers might cancel a big order for the weekend, but they might say they want fresh again on Tuesday. The, the f traditional farming cannot deal with that. They need to harvest when they harvest because of time, people, resources, machinery, and, and just the fact that it's in the ground and ready to go. But we can not only speed growth up, but we can slow it down and, and largely pause it, not for huge times, but for three or four days without big, big problems. Which takes some of the commercial gamble off their hands as well. So we can help with the weather and we can help with how they sell it, put the power back in their hands, if you like. The second stream of uh, parameters that people really want is things like taste, flavour, nutrition. Uh, and and basil is a really good example. If you're selling basil in a supermarket, you want the, the kind of uh, length to, to stem, leaf ratio that, they, that, they, that looks healthy and people expect to see. But if you work in the food process industry, you want the plants, the leaves to be the size of your hand and you want the most intense, brutal flavour that we can possibly give you. And we can. So with the same seed, the same raw inputs, we can give two very different outputs for those two different customers. And I think that's something that's quite unique to using this technology. The interest from farmers so far has come from the extreme ends of the production scale, the smaller niche farmers and the ones who demand scale. There's nothing in the middle. So in, in our opinion, and this is just an opinion, vertical farming only works at scale. So a, a big facility, say kind of 10 towers or more. And that's to do with the, the economics and being able to flex and uh, and how you trade with the retailers, etc. Everything kind of aligns at that point. However, for other crops, very niche crops, yes, you can have one tower which can produce incredible, unique things for maybe chemical composition or for smell or for medical. There's lots of things that work at both ends of the spectrum, but there's not a lot which kind of lands in, in the middle, if that makes sense. Dave has received questions about the IPCC climate change report that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and he emphasises that there's no one solution, but that he feels vertical farming will have a part to play. Absolutely, and I think we need to be very clear here. We are part of the solution, but we are not the solution. So where we can really help is we can, for example, in traditional farming, we can help grow the baby plants and we can strengthen them to pest disease, temperaturize the usuals. And that will give traditional farming a much higher uh, chance of being successful each year. And that reduces wastage. It can reduce food miles. There's lots of things that we can do to help the overall, to bring the needle down. But we cannot do it on our own. It's just not possible. In a sense, the engineering part of the journey that IGS has been on is now complete. They can still finesse the design and the physical structure, but the real work is now to understand how to use it to grow plants in the optimum way. They have made a lot of advances already, designing thousands of what they call recipes, configurations of all the environmental factors. But this is an entirely new field of science and there's a lot of work to do. 
There really is. Um, and there's a, a terrible analogy you use for lots of things, which is the old onion with several layers. And for us, there's a few layers on the outside which which work for most things. So an example, red and blue makes things grow. Yeah, we, we kind of agree. We also disagree a little bit. But as a, as a sweeping statement, that is true. However, the, the more layers you uncover, the more specific the things you find out are. So green will do this or changing the temperature by this amount does this. But the further you go down these layers, it is for more targeted events. So it no longer works for all crops. It'll work for certain types of crops at certain stage of growth, but that knowledge is much more valuable than the easy ones at the beginning. So what I'm really interested to find out is how much of the inner layers, the kind of the really, really unique kind of when you do this at this time for this long on this crop, it has a fundamental step change in behavior. That's what I'm looking forward to find out for more and more things, which will be useful for all industries, not just indoor farming. The more this is understood, the more we can uh, yeah, help all industries and, and help that energy crisis, as you mentioned earlier on. To work on this, IGS has expanded rapidly in recent years. One of their recruits is Elliot Erskine, a microbiologist who works in a knowledge transfer capacity between IGS and the James Hutton Institute. In previous years, Elliot was the only biologist, let alone microbiologist, working on the project. But the scientific side of the company has been expanding rapidly. A huge part of my project has been looking at the irrigation water. So, uh, like if we if we kind of roll back a little bit from vertical farming to farming in general, the sort of from a microbiological standpoint, the you know your high risk events are going to come from potentially the soil, the water, and those are your kind of main. Uh, oh, and obviously not a issue for vertical farming, but um, out in the field, uh, errant cows wandering in to the field, doing their business because uh, that's obviously a lot of the most dangerous food poisoning type organisms come usually via that route um, or from the irrigation water. Not an issue in vertical controlled environment farming. We have control over the substrate, we have control over the water and basically a lot of my work day to day is the monitoring of that of those inputs. So I do a lot of sampling I do a lot of investigative microbiology, uh, identifying uh, different species that are there. Um, I've done some microbiome analysis, which is, you know, very, very buzzword, very, very modern now. Um, everyone wants to know their own microbiome. So, looking at basically who's there, who who is present at the sort of bacterial level in the soil, on the plants, uh, in the water. Because although you control the environment, these aren't clean rooms. They are a biological system. Living things live there. And uh, plants don't actually do well in a sterile environment. They don't thrive. Uh, so some of my work has been looking at the pros and cons of lowering the microbial load in the system. The system that we have is obviously hydroponic. Uh, so the plants are situated in a substrate and we provide nutrition from the irrigation solution. And that's uh, like an ebb and flow. So basically we flood the tray and then we drain the tray. 
so one of the questions I've been looking at from a microbiological standpoint is, is it better to have a biotic substrate? So like a living substrate, um, something like uh, coir, which is a coconut industry waste product. It's basically processed into, I mean, it, it looks almost like a compost or something, you know, it's kind of fibrous and that basically acts as like a, it helps give structure for the roots. But it also, because it's a living thing, it has its own associated group of bacteria, fungi. And all sorts of interesting microbiological elements in there. But you can go the other way, all the way away from a living substrate. You can look at something that's completely abiotic, so doesn't have an associated living component to it. Um, things like clay pellets or uh, rock wool is quite commonly used. I work with perlite in the lab if I'm doing full hydroponics in little little tubs. It's, uh, it's very light and fluffy. But yeah, one of the fundamental questions is, is it better to have a sort of strongly associated microbial community to act as a buffer versus an entirely sterile substrate that is maybe more susceptible if something does get in? If you have a robust community and a pathogen does enter the system, it's much less likely to cause a problem if it's marginalised. It will be outcompeted by the community. Whereas in a sterile community, it could take over. And this is a fundamental question that is still in scientific development. It is all about simulating the defences that would be provided by the natural microbial community present in the soil but while keeping it under control in a vertical farm. The relationships between these species are incredibly complex and decades of work lie ahead. Dave is a mechanical engineer who has had to learn about plants and Elliot is a biologist who has had to learn to appreciate engineering and modelling. It's an interesting team that's had to adopt other disciplines. But for some of the team, joining a vertical farm feels like it has a touch of destiny. I've always had a connection to farming in one way or the other. This is Farah Kahir, senior software developer at IGS. When I was growing up, my aunties, they live in, well, they, they lived in communist Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic. So there wasn't much in the way of food in the shops, but because they had like small holdings, they were able to grow all their food and on their own land. So they had a kind of subsistence existence. So I've always sort of had this interest in, you know, it was always fun for me to go on holiday there because I'd come from the city and then I'd go to communist Czechoslovakia, which was like a different regime entirely. And uh, my aunties, I always think it was quite magical that they had everything growing on their own land. And then a few years ago, um, when I moved to Edinburgh, I became involved in this organisation, which is now called Earth in Common, which basically encourages people to not have their own allotment, but a shared allotment space. So you would like plant vegetables with a group of like seven people. So people who are living in urban spaces would have access to, to grow their own fruit and vegetables. So that's expanding now. And recently I've moved to a home where I can now grow my own potatoes in my own backyards. Farah's job as a software developer is primarily to work on what's known as scheduling. The set of instructions telling the system what to do to the plants and when. So basically we have the plant scientists on one side 
and they develop recipes, what we call recipes. And that is basically a list of instructions of, you know, how much water a plant needs, how much light a plant needs, what kind of light needs and how many times that needs to cycle through in a day cycle. And then on the other side, you have the hardware, Dave's domain. So that is the machines, which are actually, that's the lift, which is basically a bit like a farmer because he has to like inspect 50 different little fields of trees with crops growing in them. So the bit that the software kind of encompasses, we're kind of the bit that sort of pulls those two pieces together. So we upload a recipe to the system and the system then sends commands to the hardware to tell us when to um, execute those instructions in the recipe. So a lot of the work that we do revolves around scheduling. So we need to make sure that, you know, the water commands are getting executed, say, every two hours, the lights are coming on, the lights are switching off. And Farah had to record error responses. So say that um, we miss a watering, we want to keep trying the system to try again, keep the watering, make sure that the plants have enough water. So, yeah, the first thing I was kind of working on was, you know, how how do we sort of record errors better, failures in the system, and make them visible to the end user. The lift is a bottleneck, as it can only perform a certain number of operations per minute, and the critical path needs to be optimised. So the most challenging part is you've got 50 different microenvironments and you've only, say, got one lift. <laughs> so that has to look after 50 different trees. So one of the challenges is to know, like, where is the lift? Is it busy? Has it got time to go water a plant? If a plant isn't watered, do we try watering again? So we have what we, we've implemented something called strategies. So the lighting strategy might be slightly different from the watering strategy. So for example, we might keep trying a lighting strategy until the next lighting command is issued. But with watering, we'll say, well, we only want to try till halfway till the next watering because watering's quite complicated. We always have to make sure that the plant has enough water, but at the same time, we must make sure that the tree isn't going to get flooded either. The scaling has been worked out and Farah is confident that the software has joined the hardware in being ready to scale. And I guess the next, the next sort of challenge we're going to have is scaling. So we have to scale it to <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands of towers. We've already started on it, so it's already got a level of scaling built in. And we already know kind of what we want to do to increase that scaling. So it's just really a matter of implementing it now. But yeah, we should be able to scale up to a couple of hundred towers very shortly. The future of food production will have to be diverse and flexible to meet the problems that lie ahead of us. But engineering solutions and agricultural science are combining to help give us a fighting chance. We started this episode with some scary statistics from the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization. But its motto, at least, can give us a positive ending. Fiat panis. Let there be bread. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. 
My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own cornucopia is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Intelligent Growth Solutions, and also to the James Hutton Institute. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.